passage is Matthew 22, and we're going to be starting in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, My name, saying, Sorry. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, church. How are we doing? Good. Enjoying the wonderful 80-degree weathers of Florida in the middle of January, right? Where else in the world? Apparently, there's quite a few places right now, but here we are in Orlando. And uh, grateful to be back with you. Um, I had a week away with my family. I'm uh, So, real quick, I'm getting my clock up, and the reason is, is um, I'm preaching politics today, and I know how much you guys love uh, hearing about politics in church especially, and so I'm going to make it extra long for you today, but I want to make sure it's not too long, all right? Um, so uh, we are uh, we're in this series called Controversial Christ, and before I get started in our new series, um, Josiah launched us last week, uh, but I take on uh, this challenging topic of politics in Jesus, um, I want to invite you to a vision night that we're having uh, next week. So every year we have a vision night, and then that annual vision night, part of our hopes is, is that we have alignment of our church and our leaders around the vision that God's called us to for the new year. And that, that means that we unpack some of the finances, the budget. We also share how we're going to uh, use those resources for the pointing of our communities to Jesus Christ. So uh, we're going to have that next week. And if you're a part of the church, we need you there. Uh, what I also want to encourage you to is there are some new uh, potential possibilities of change. Potential possibilities. There you go. Two things. Um, there's a some big possibility of change in the next year, and you need to be made aware of that, and we're going to need your help deciding on some things related to our future. And so uh, I'm going to give you just enough cliffhanger to make sure that you're with us for dinner next Sunday evening, and it's going to be at Oasis Church. They've opened up their fellowship hall for us to use. Uh, it's going to be a wonderful time together as we do that. And so you can get the details online um, and uh, you'll also get an email announcement uh, for that to where you can RSVP. But we need you to RSVP uh, so that we could plan to have dinner together. Child care will be provided as well. So uh, I'm going to ask for your prayer as we get started right now. Oh, you, you, here's what's funny. We're, we're like, we, we like so on the fly sometimes. My slides are on my keys and he needs my keys because of my jump drive. So there we go. Um, let's try not to do that again, but we always do it again. Okay. Um, <laughs> thanks, Josiah. Such confidence coming forward. Uh, let's pray. Lord, um, ask for your help right now. God, I know 
I know that politics is so polarizing in our nation. And God, I know that, that good people are in here with good intentions related to uh, the political vision of the country and the particular parties and candidates that they support. But Lord, I also know that, Lord, we need your help in navigating the waters of politics because it has less to do with us and even less to do about our nation and more to do with you and your lordship over our hearts. So Lord, I ask that you would reign supreme in our hearts. I ask that those places that have been hardened over by uh, the polarization of things, uh, God, would be softened and we could hear your voice and we could walk in wisdom and we could live that King, the reality that King Jesus is supreme over all. In his name we pray. Amen. David Platt in, as a pastor up in McLean Bible Church in Virginia. And over the summer, there was a shooting in Virginia Beach. And people were killed. And there was a national call to prayer for the president after that had taken place. And he was faced with the question after he got the call from one of the president's handlers, so to speak, um, do I pray for him or do I not? It's a pretty simple question. And David Platt unpacks what this looked like for him as he decided to pray for the president. He said, at the end of my sermon at the one o'clock worship gathering, I stepped to the side for what I thought would be a couple of moments in quiet reflection as we prepared to take the Lord's Supper. But I was immediately called backstage and told that the President of the United States was on the way to church, would, he would be there in a matter of minutes, and would like for us to pray for him. I immediately thought about my longing to guard the integrity of the gospel in our church. So you, you kind of wonder what might be going through a pastor's head as it relates to politics and Christianity in the church. What's the first thought that goes through the pastor's mind? It's not even my own political presuppositions. It's not anything that relates to the way I think or, or, or feel this country could be run. But there's a real heart to guard what matters most, the gospel in the church. And for David Platt, that meant he would pray this prayer for the president. In McLean Bible Church in Virginia, it's filled with people on the left and the right and a, a very diverse group of people, much like our church is today. But as he brought the president upon stage, he prayed this prayer. Oh God, we praise you as the one universal king over all. You are our leader and Lord and we worship you. There is one God and one Savior and it's you. And your name is Jesus. And we exalt you, Jesus. We know we need your mercy. We need your grace. We need your help. We need your wisdom in our country. And so we stand right now on behalf of our president. And we pray your grace and your mercy and your wisdom upon him. God, we pray that he would know how much you love him. So much that you sent Jesus to die for his sins. Our sins. So we pray that we would look to you. That he would trust in you that he would lean on you, that he would govern and make decisions in ways that are good for justice and good for righteousness and good for equity, every good path. 
Lord, we pray. We pray that you would give him all the grace he needs to govern in ways that we just saw in 1 Timothy 2 that lead to peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. God, we pray for your blessing in that way upon his family. We pray that you would give them strength. We pray that you would give them clarity, wisdom, wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Please, O oh Lord, give him wisdom and help him lead our country alongside other leaders. We pray today for leaders in Congress. We pray for leaders in courts. We pray for leaders in national and state levels. Please, O oh God, help us look to you. Help us trust in your word. Help us seek your wisdom and live in ways that reflect your love and your grace, your righteousness and your justice. We pray your blessings on our president toward that end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As I read that prayer, it was part of my heart to pray that prayer. Pray the prayer for our president, but pray for the leaders in the legislature, the justice system, the state level, at the local level, because we live in a political reality. We can't escape it. We live in a political reality. And much of the church throughout American history, or maybe in particular the last 100 years, it's been a growing divisiveness, a polarization to the left or to the right. And what that's caused is a, not a coming together, but, but a, a, a polar opposing parties, a tribalism. And then there's this middle ground where people feel sad and confused and angry and disillusioned. And so there's a good chance you find yourself to the left or to the right or, or maybe in the middle disillusioned. My, my call is not to make the left more right or the right more left. My call is to make us all with eyes of faith look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith and whom we need to be Lord over our lives and, and Lord over our political realities. And so this is the heartbeat by which I come to you today. And it is a heart like David Platt, when he said, my immediate thought is to guard the integrity of the gospel. So I want to make four points today. First one is that the po politics have always been controversial. Always. Like always been controversial. There has never been a time where the way that people are governed has not been controversial. Number two, we see that Jesus affirms government and commands Christian obedience to government authorities. We're going to look at that in the text. Number three, we're going to see that Jesus calls our primary allegiance to be with God, Yahweh, the king of the universe. And number four, we're going to look for wisdom for a new way forward. Okay, to point number one, politics have always been controversial. Matthew 22:15 through 18. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And he sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and, and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? 
So Jesus saw right through the question. Jesus saw right through what these people were trying to accomplish with the question. The Pharisees weren't man enough or woman enough or whatever it is to go to Jesus directly, so they sent some of their disciples. And they teamed up with the group called the Herodians. Now, this is an interesting point because you have two opposing factions, the Herodians and the Pharisees, teaming up together because they have a common enemy. Who's the common enemy? It's Jesus. And so the Pharisees were those who wanted to see Israel return to its glory days under King David and have a theocracy where God is the one who rules and reigns and legislature is run accordingly and there's a pure religion that runs the government. That was the way of the Pharisees. Now, don't think that it's necessarily a a glorify, a, a, a real glorious way because oftentimes you see Jesus calling out the Pharisees most out of any other people and he calls them point blank wicked because they wanted to use the words of God for their own perversions to turn and twist the words in such a way that allowed them to put people under their thumb. So the Pharisees weren't all good intended in this vision of this theocracy. And then you had the other side where the Herodians, those were the loyalists of the Herod dynasty that ruled over Jerusalem under Caesar. And so the Herodians saw Jesus as a threat as well because Jesus comes preaching things like, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So if you don't think Jesus is controversial, then you got to erase that verse out of the Bible. Jesus was incredibly controversial, and the political realities of his day were political realities that he addressed, and he addresses it here. And so they come to him with this flattery. I, I think about all the times that I might come to Christ with flattery, by the way. God, you're just so amazing, and I love you so much, and you're so good and grand and glorious, and that's a good pray, prayer to pray, but, but listen to me. Oftentimes, I think that somehow I could brown nose him, but he doesn't want that. You know what he wants to, from us when we come to him? He wants our faith, not our flattery. And so come to him honestly. And these people weren't coming to Jesus with an honest question. They were trying to entangle him with his words. They wanted Jesus' answer to be his death sentence is what they wanted. Because if he answered it in the way that says, yeah, I think you should pay the taxes to Caesar right off the bat, then he's a loyalist of Caesar and not of Yahweh and he's a traitor. That's what the Pharisees would say. And if he said, no, the tax is unlawful, well, then he has no place in the kingdom that reigns under Caesar. And so they call him an insurrectionist, and he's killed, which, by the way, did end up happening. If you don't think that Jesus is political, you just need to look at the sign that was above the cross that said King of the Jews. That was the charge against him. Jesus Claiming to be Lord was an incredible political statement. And that's a statement that we make each and every day in our world. So here, let me do this. I want to take a five-minute overview of the history of Christianity and politics 
in our world. This is going to be like a 30,000 feet flyover of the last 2,000 years. You ready for it? Everybody ready for it? You ready for a little history lesson? Here we go. For the first three centuries, for the first 300 years, Christians were persecuted in the most horrendous ways for the first 300 years. And the reason why Christians were persecuted in the most horrendous of ways is because of those three words, Jesus is Lord. It led to them being thrown in the arena for sport with gladiators. It led for them to be thrown to the lions for spectators to watch, to be ripped to shreds. They were martyred in some of the most horrific ways because they would not recant and say Caesar is Lord, but they said Jesus is Lord. And that led to their persecution. Then after those first 300 years, there was a man named Constantine who became the empire and Constantine became a Christian. So where Christianity was practiced in the shadows because of the threat of death, Christianity was now allowed to be practiced more in the open. And so it was a new thing for Christianity. And while all the things of the Emperor Constantine, like the Crusades, didn't necessarily make life much better for genuine Christians and allowed for the name of Christ to be defamed, it did allow for Christianity to become out of the shadows and more into the arena of public ideas. Then emerged Christianity in the medieval times, where before this, Christianity was something that was not a part of the state, but in medieval Christianity, the church was the state, right? You had the Pope who ruled the world and the Catholic Church. And so there was no division between politics and the, the church and the state. The church was the state, and the power broker was the church. They were the kingmakers of Spain and Europe. In fact, much of the war and turmoil surrounded this, which led to a, or a, a, a Protestant revival under Martin Luther. And this Protestant revival or reformation of sorts was a movement away from the Catholic Church that held power primarily by not allowing people of God to read the word of God. It was only allowed to be in one language and only those who knew those language or had the skill could use it. And so they perverted the word of God for their own selfish game. And then comes the Protestant Reformation and they had what's called five solas. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Solo deo, solo, soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Scripture alone, faith alone, Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. And this was the cry of the Protestant Reformation. But again, the church wasn't firmly rooted in that. The people of God weren't firmly rooted, or even the, the people around us or the world weren't firmly rooted in that because of sin and wickedness, both in the church and outside of the church. And through the Protestant Reformation and to the time that we're in, there were Puritans who came and settled in the United States. They wanted a pure religion. They brought about not the colonialization of the British Empire that was fought against, 
but a freedom of religion, which I would add wasn't perfect, wasn't pure. But our nation was founded or borrowed from. Some would argue that it wasn't founded on it, and I don't think it's worth fighting that argument, but I would say that it's worth fighting that our nation did borrow from biblical principles. And those biblical principles were meant to be the driving force of our nation's founding. And then here we are in our cultural moment today. And as I said, over the last 100 years, there's been this swaying shift of political ideas that have moved us to one side or the other or has caused us to be paralyzed in the middle. And through much of the 20th century, we see this kind of tennis game or this ping pong match being bounced to and fro. The church being uh, early on uh, wanting to see the message of a social gospel be rooted, which meant that you care for the needs of orphans and widows and the poor and the like, which is very good, very honorable, something that we should be engaged in. But what happened was that there was a replacement of the gospel with social justice. And then you have, on the other side, a response to that. There was a moral decline in the United States of America happening in the 60s and the 70s with the sexual revolution. And so what, what came as the response to the moral decline was a moral majority. And the moral majority sought to bring a coalition of voters around a particular party and particular viewpoints and policies and they created voter blocks. And in response to that, we see a movement away from the moral majority and people who somewhat say, I agree with that, but I don't, and I agree with this, but I don't, and I'm sad and confused and I'm disillusioned. Where do I go? And so maybe you find yourself over here or over here, and again, like I said, my job is not to tell you which way to go, but my job is to help you see how you make sure that in your in your daily life, in the way that you respond to your, your right as a citizen to vote, in the way you respond to your neighbor who has an opposing political viewpoint, how do you look at this with the lenses of Jesus is Lord first, right? How do you look at it with these lenses? Uh, I'll give you just a small little example. We were on the way home from the mountains, and uh, our van has a DVD player. And on the DVD player, uh, I, I heard come through the airwaves as I'm driving, um, there was uh, uh, this response that said, uh, I'm a Democrat. And so my daughter in the back, uh, she says, uh, right then in that moment, she says, Daddy, what's a Democrat? And I struggled to, you know, how am I going to paint this picture that gives a really accurate portrayal of the two different parties that doesn't have the lenses of my presuppositions anyway? And so I simply said, it's the opposite of a Republican. <laughs> <laughs> and then I turned to Kara. I said, you didn't talk about this with him yet? <laughs> but I realized this tension because really I, I want my, my children to have viewpoints that aren't skewed by me as their father. And, and l listen, I, I want to tell you that it's okay to have a political party. It's okay to have political passions. It's okay to be involved. I want to encourage your citizenship. Man, I pray that this church raises up people in the halls of power. I want to see that. But I want to see it through the lens of Jesus first. 
And not a tribalism that brings about divisiveness, but a hope of a better future in Christ. Ray Ortland says it better than I ever could. He says this. Let's be politically involved in our nation. It's part of our God-given experience of community that we care about what's going on. I see nothing in the Bible telling us to withdraw into our own selfish cocoons. But if your politics, if your identity is political, if you feel more intensity for partisan politics than for Jesus and his cause, then you need to stop being a Democrat, you need to stop being a Republican, and you need to become a Christian. Do you hear that? If you feel more intensity for political partisanship than you do for Jesus and his cause, then we have to take a, ref- a step back and reflect. Jesus, how can you be more Lord in my life than you have ever been? So this leads me to the second point. We see that, yes, politics has a history of divisiveness and is controversial. The second point is that Jesus affirms government and commands Christian obedience to governing authorities. I'm going to read that again. Jesus affirms government and commands Christians' obedience to governing authorities. Matthew 22, 19 through 21. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and his inscription is, is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So, I want to give you a little context of the situation that Jesus is speaking into here. When the Jews are called to give a denarius to Caesar, it's an imperial tax. They're being colonized by the Roman Empire. They feel as though they're foreigners in their own land. This is the place of God, Jerusalem. That Jesus is in. He's in the temple of God. This says everything about the goodness and grace and glory of God upon his people. How could a Jew allow for Rome to be lawful occupiers of them? How could a Jew pay a denarius to have soldiers that reminded them that they were under the thumb of Caesar? It was a reminder of a slavery of sorts. And so to pay that imperial tax, it wasn't just about the money, which was the equivalent of a day's wages. It was about the injustice that was taking place. It was about their feeling of being put down and not being able to be who God created them to be in the land that God gave them. So it was a very, very big deal. Jesus' response was simply brilliant. He says, where's the coin? Where's the denarius? Who's got a denarius? Let's see the denarius. Whose image is on the coin? Well, it's Caesar's. Whose inscription is on the coin? Well, it's Caesar's. So Jesus deduces from that reality, if the coin is made by Caesar and his image is is upon it and his name is inscribed, inscribed upon it, then, well, it doesn't belong to God. Belongs to Caesar. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to him. Jesus was saying that there are 
certain responsibilities we have to the authorities that we're under. And some of you may have no desire to follow governing authorities, but let me tell you something, friends, that you are benefiting from them whether you realize it or not. We cannot operate without governing authorities. In fact, governing authorities are part of God's original mandate for us to fill the earth and subdue it. That we would be, we, we humanity, men and women, would have the responsibility of taking the chaos of this world that exists without organization and creative genius, that we would see human flourishing in our world. And I believe that God allows for governing authorities to exist for the good of humanity, not towards its evil or wickedness. And so governing authorities are a necessary part of life. We see Paul writing this to the Romans, who are Christians in Rome. Rome was not an easy place for a Christian. Rome was not an equitable environment for Christians. It was hard to be a Christian in Rome. In fact, it could cost you your life. And what does he write to those who are in Rome? Verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Do you hear that? Like, we had turmoil this week as a result of a lot of different things. And in the midst of that turmoil, I don't want us to lose this fact that there was an airplane flying over Iran and it was shot down. Whether it was by mistake or somehow this missile just haphazardly hit the plane, 176 people are dead. And we should hear on that what belongs to Caesar is Caesar's. Whose image is on those people? God's. Whose image is on you? God's. And so it is a big deal when things like that happen. Because government is meant for human flourishing. We have a responsibility towards government. We have a responsibility, and I'll talk about it later, to bring change where change is necessary. 1 Peter 13 through chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. Another scripture from the Apostle Peter. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Listen, honor the emperor. Why do we pray for our president, whether it's Barack Obama or Donald Trump? Because we are called to honor them by praying for them because the good of our nation is the glory of God and we want to see the glory of God even in the midst of people who are unholy and lead in ways that we don't agree with. And you could say that for whoever comes in. Everyone is in need of God's grace and mercy. And everyone is prone to lead in ways that aren't that way. And so we pray that our president and our courts and our legislator 
would be run according to the will of God. Now, Jesus knew this when he stood before Pontius Pilate as he awaited his execution. Jesus knew this was important. Pontius Pilate says to Jesus after his silence, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. You would have no authority at all unless it had been given you from above. Every authority is going to be held to an account from the authority that is above them. So those who rule in wickedness, and many have throughout human history, and many do today, those who rule in wickedness will be held to account for the way that they rule. Everyone. And we, as citizens of the place where we can put people in power, we have that same accountability. And this is why we must respond in such a way that says, listen, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. So I want to also encourage our involvement in government and politics by the way of saying that the history of the Bible has it. I'm not going to do as thorough of a work that I did in the history of Christianity and politics over the last 2,000 years, but we see that Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and later he became the prime minister of Egypt, second in command only to Pharaoh himself. He stopped a famine from wiping out many, many people, in particular, in particular the Israelite people. We see that Daniel was in exile in, out of Israel into Babylon. He was a functional slave. And he was brought into the courts of the king. Daniel was faced with, do I live under the king's authority or do I live under God's authority as supreme? He chose God's authority as supreme. God used him in a mighty, mighty way, not only from the king of Babylon, but Medes and the Persians, God used him over three kingdoms in an incredible period of history, human history. We also see that Esther was abducted, brought into King Xerxes' court along with her father, Mordecai, and they were used by God to stop a planned Israelite genocide. We did a series in the book of Esther, and we say that Esther called the people of God to fasting, depending upon him. Ah, I want to see a revival in this land. I want to see it in America. I want to see it so badly. I want to see it in Orlando. We've got to depend on God more in prayer and in fasting. We've got to depend more on his strength. And that includes praying and fasting for those in power, that God's favor would move through them for the good of our people, our nation, and in the name of Jesus Christ. We also see that Nehemiah persuaded the king to allow him to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and its walls allowing for its protection. None of those things were easy, by the way, for any of those people who were in power. None of those things were easy. 
And when they were put in those positions, it really tested their loyalties. And you know how they got through it? A position of humility on their knees. You know that, we know that literally with Daniel as he was thrown into the lion's den. Russell Moore says, we must engage the culture. The question is why and how. We engage politically because we love our neighbors. We care about human flourishing. And we do so on multiple fronts. We engage on Capitol Hill on issues ranging from stopping the abortion industry to protecting religious liberty to speaking out for human rights for the persecu those persecuted overseas. We also cultivate churches that see a holistic nature of the kingdom of God and who shape those consciences, the consciences of people to live as citizens. But we always do that with the mindset that we are ultimately seeking to point people to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. <laughs> do you hear that? We're seeking ultimately in all of our activity or maybe even activism, activism to point people to God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that leads me to our third point is that our primary allegiance is to Christ. Our primary allegiance is to Christ. So there's a lesser and greater message that Jesus is sharing here. The lesser message is the king, or the, the coin is made by Caesar for Caesar because his image is on it, his inscription is upon it, so therefore it belongs to him. So yes, submit to governing authorities. But there's a greater message here, and the greater message is whose image is on you? Whose image is on me and you? We are made in God's image. We're made in the Imago Dei. And God not only showed us with the creation of humanity in Adam and Eve, but he did so by coming as Jesus Christ. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Came as a baby boy. Born in a manger. Lived a perfect and sinless life. But we see that Jesus Christ is in God's image and likeness. And we are in his image and likeness. And so we belong to him. We don't belong to any ruling authority. They don't enslave us. They don't have complete control over us. And this is why there are times where we are told commanded to resist governing authorities if necessary. The answer of do we or can we or should we resist governing authorities, the answer is yes. If it's an appropriate time that we are called to. So let me give you a few examples of this in the Bible. The midwives of Exodus, when Moses was born, they were commanded to kill the newborn babies baby boy. They're commanded to kill them. Those midwives, many of them, said no. No way. Even at the expense of their own lives. And thus, we have the story of Moses, by the way. The Ten Commandments, ring a bell. Powerful, powerful story. And that was by those who resisted those who were in authority over them. We have the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the story of Daniel as this 
big statue was unveiled. And it was a way of bringing loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. And all those along this worship hillside were supposed to bow the knee to this statue, this idol. And everybody went down and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood standing. And even at the very threat of their life in the furnace, they said, we trust in God. And, you know, God's going to deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we are not bowing down to that idolatrous statue. <laughs> That's a great story. Powerful story. Truth of resistance of government. In Acts 5, New Testament here, they brought Peter and the apostles to court. They said, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Acts 5, 29. But Peter and the apostles answered them, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. May that be our posture. May that be our posture. So, when are we to resist the government authorities? I think I can put this real clearly for you. We're to resist governing authorities when the government commands what God forbids. Do you hear that? When the government commands what God forbids. What God says don't do, and if the government says you are to do this, who do you listen to? God. It's real simple. And even at whatever cost it might be, you answer first to him. So if government commands something that God forbids, you say yes to God. Or if the government forbids something that God commands. If the government says, don't do this, but God says, you're to do this, like preach the gospel, for example. Peter says, we're not called to obey you, courts. We're called to obey Jesus. Our loyalties is the one higher than you. And so I respectfully decline. <laughs> that was the heartbeat. And that is the heartbeat of us today. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, he says, give Caesar the money because it's his money. He printed it. But don't give him the allegiance. What Jesus Christ is saying is that you may give Caesar some of what he wants, which is his money. But you cannot give Caesar ultimately what he wants, which is to, which is to completely accept his system of coercion his system of injustice, his system of exclusion. But we can't give him that. So there's a lot that can go into this, and I could preach three or four more sermons, and I'm sure we'd pack this place out each and every week, right? <laughs> I'm kidding. You guys are like, no, never, I'm leaving. Um, but, but there's so much more that we could go in on to this. But I think what's really important for us to see is that the world's systems will always be at odds with the rule of God. I want you to always see that. There is not a utopia that can be brought about politically because le legislature has the power to change laws. It has the power to change society even for its good, but it cannot change the human heart. And so we must give our loyalties to God because he is the one that brings renewal to the human heart, and there is no law that can do that. There is no law that can do that. You are here voluntarily. You are here by your own free will, 
And do you know what that says about you? It says that, man, God's doing something here. God's doing something here. And he is moving and shaping and working in my heart. You're also going to see times of our history in our American government, and they have happened already, where things that are legalized aren't moral. Things that are legalized aren't moral. Like there was a time in human history where slaves were legally owned. That was immoral, unbiblical. It was a massive injustice. And when you see those things happen, it should cause you to awaken inside with anger, ferocious anger at the wickedness of man that seeks to put down humanity. It's a massive issue. There's a great example of what this looked like and how do you respond to that with Dr. Martin Luther King. He was in the Birmingham jail and he wrote this letter to some people who had discouraged his civil disobedience. He says, how does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. And the law in particular there was that of segregation. Because of the color of people's skin, they couldn't go to the same school or be offered the same type of education that was offered to uh, those publicly. And this is what Martin Luther King Jr. is saying is an injustice, and he's in jail for it. It was a massive deal. And I think that there's an activism that's alive today in our world, but it's not an activism that's like Dr. King's. It's an activism that's filled with self-righteousness, that's filled with anger. There's an activism that's filled with prideful arrogance. But there is an activism in Dr. King that was one that was out of humility, that was willing to suffer for standing up for what is right, but also walk in humility. He had his detractors on both sides. Some said he went too far. Some said he didn't go far enough. And I think that the same could be true, could be said of many of us today. In fact, that might be something that's said of me today. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I, the life I live now in flesh, I live by the Son, and in faith, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I want to, as I wrap up this with our application, I want, to, I want us to really see what God has done, not only in creating you, but redeeming you, that causes you to live for him. And the message of the cross is not only that God made you, but he bought you with a price. So live for him. Do I pray that you're political? And that maybe you even have political affiliations and preferences? Yes. Is it good that you do that? Yes. Is it good that you're active in the political realm? Yes. But don't let it be, Lord. Don't let it be, Lord. 
And even when push comes to shove and you have to deny a political policy or political party or a political candidate or political cause, you're willing to for the sake of the cross because you've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Okay, wisdom for a new way forward. When they heard it, after Jesus said this, they marveled. They marveled. These, these people who wanted to take them down, they're just like, it's not happening today. And they leave in amazement because of the way Jesus answered their question. I find it interesting that they marveled. It was, they, you know, this, this was Jesus here. They wanted to see him dead, but yet they left marveling at him. I, I think that's a good word for the way his human history has looked at Jesus. We've marveled at him. I've got a friend who's Jewish that's walking the streets of Jerusalem today, right now, and he's going through the, the, the story of Jesus Christ as he's doing so. And you know what he's doing? He's marveling at him. He may not be saying he's a savior, but he's marveling at Jesus. And that has been a typical response of human history to Christ, right? But they left him. They didn't follow him. That's our tendency. We could just marvel at Jesus and, wow, this is a, that was really amazing, man. You had a great answer, Jesus. Good job. More flattery. Or you could follow him with faith. And that's what I want to do right now. Real quickly, uh, a few things in the way we follow Christ by faith. Number one, we have a humble confidence in Christ. So our, our emotions don't ride on an election. Our emotions don't ride uh, ride on the political cycles and who's in office because our humble confidence is in Christ. And that also means that we can approach those who don't agree with us, those who are de detractors, even those who stand against Jesus with humility and grace that we don't have to play the polarizing effect of government, that we can engage people in the thoughts that matter a whole lot for this world because they matter, but we can do so with charity, with charity even in opposition. Number two, there's a conviction to the truth of God's word, biblical conviction, that we would have a biblical conviction. We would be led by a conviction that says the Bible is the ruling authority. That's why I put that picture up there earlier of David Platt praying for the present because there was a greater authority he was submitted to, right? And we are submitted to that greater authority. Here's what this looks like real practically. We, we give credence to biblical principles over public policy, right? Biblical principles are held in higher esteem than public policy. Let, let me give you a, 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 just a quick example of that. There's a command in Deuteronomy 10, 19. Love the sojourner who's the immigrant. Therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. So there is a biblical principle of love that's there, right? But does it dictate public policy? No, it doesn't. Here's what it says to me as a pastor of a church. We're called to love the immigrant. And there we are a city that's full of immigrants. And so we are to open our homes, open our hearts, open our checkbooks, open our minds, open our lives to their story. 
and come around them in the way that God has called them to. But that does not dictate public policy, like how we control our borders and who goes in and who goes out and how many immigrants are here and all those things. I let the government do that, but my call, listen, my call is to, yes, vote on the side of my biblical convictions, which don't determine public policy, but yet there's a command for me in the middle of that to love sacrificially, all right? Third one, last one. Okay, you guys are ready. Oh, thank God. This is going to be the longest. I'm kidding. All right. Uh, Christ-like compassion. Christ-like compassion. Jesus showed compassion. And, and listen to me here when I say this. This is the way that the church will get the attention of the watching world. When Rome, uh, the, in the early church, in the first 300 years, if there were unwanted pregnancies, they couldn't have an abortion. It was too expensive, and it was too dangerous. And so what they did was they, they took the, the babies, and they just put them in trash heaps. Or maybe they had like a Craigslist, and they sold them for slavery. You know what the early Christians did? There's written proof about it. They went to the trash heaps. They took these, these babies, and they brought them into their home as their children. It was adoption, man. They became these children's moms and dads. Brothers and sisters, and they showed a Christ-like compassion that made the watching world say, there's something different about them. There's something powerful about that. It has been the church that has stood for women's rights. Jesus Christ himself, by the way. It has been the church that has stood for the homeless and the poor and those who are most neglected. And if we want to see the world marvel at Christ in such a way that doesn't leave him, but follows him, that's what we're called to. We're called to that type of sacrificial love. A love that's giving of ourselves, not worrying about the cost, but knowing that Jesus paid it all. And for that, I ask you this question. Whose image is on you? Whose image is on you? He bled for you, he bought you, and he reconciled you to God, you who were once far from him, the ruler of our universe. It's not that you didn't submit to governing authorities, it's that you didn't submit to him, that you are a traitorous people. And what did you need? You needed the king to leave his throne and to set aside his crown and to take that crown of thorns and to die on that cross to say, you're bought with a price. So can we say these three words together? Jesus is Lord. Let's say it together. Jesus is Lord. And we realize that he is our King of kings and Lord of lords. And no one or nothing else will do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you so much. God, may it be true. May it be true of our church. May it be true of our lives. May our hearts be so aligned with you. May our allegiance be first towards you. May we be good citizens of this great land because, Lord, we do live in a great country. And we thank you for all the blessings that are derived from it. But we confess they're all God-given. And, God, we thank you that you call us to be a shaping influence in the world around us. In Jesus' name, the church says together, amen.
Stand with us as Pastor Josiah leads us in this time of communion.